Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings. This will be the last, the fifth of five in this series, Hope for the Discouraged. We've been walking through looking at moments in the lives of God's people when great trial or great discouragement came on them and how the Lord encouraged them through his character and his care for them. This morning, we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, looking at a moment in the life of one of God's prophet, prophets, Elijah. We'll see Elijah today is a lonely man, and this passage gives hope to lonely people, hope for the lonely. As we walk through this text together, we'll see this central truth, that when we feel alone, we should run to Jesus. We should run to Jesus when we feel alone. Now, if I were to say to you this morning, have you ever had a mountaintop moment? It no doubt brings a set of pictures to mind. We think of mountaintop as the pinnacle. You win the national championship. You're on the mountaintop. Now, maybe you've never been on a national championship mountaintop, but perhaps you've had your own mountaintop experience. A time in life when you looked out and you looked at it all and you felt like you had life in hand. You see, mountaintop is a way of picturing what it means to climb to the top of a mountain. And if you've ever had this experience where you come to a place and you look out and the view just takes your breath away. You're looking from the mountaintop and in that moment there's a rush of adrenaline, joy, peace, all these positive emotions because you're on the mountaintop. Well, there are a few greater mountaintop experiences in God's word than 1 Kings chapter 18. We come to the prophet Elijah and we find him on top of a literal mountain, Mount Carmel. You see, Elijah appeared on the scene and confronts a wicked king, King Ahab. And part of his confrontation was a contest, a battle, if you will, between deities. And here on this mountain top, we have a plane of sorts. And if you can picture with me, on one side we have one altar. On the other side we have another altar. On this side, there are 450 prophets worshiping the false god Baal. On the other side, we have one lone prophet, a single man, Elijah, declaring the word of the Lord. And Elijah proposes a contest of sorts. Now, this is common in ancient cultures, this contest of will. We see kind of the, the same sort of thing in David and Goliath, these, championing, these champions battling. And Elijah says, let's do this. Let's not offer these sacrifices. Let's instead pray to our gods. And the God who answers, we all know that is the true God. 450 to 1. Pretty good odds. So they say, let's do it. And these men, these 450 prophets, dance and sing and cut themselves and work, up into a, work themselves up into a sweat. There's a frenzy, but there's no answer. You see, all they have is the appearance of worship, but no true worship because they don't worship a true God. And then on the other side, we have Elijah with his altar. And as he looks at it, he thinks, you know, it hasn't been prepared properly. And so he asks four men to bring four large jugs of water and dump it on top of the sacrifice. Then he looks, he says, you know what, we need some more. And he sends them again and again. And so we have 12 large jars of water poured over the sacrifice. And God's word tells us that the water flows over the sacrifice, soaks it, and fills a trench around it. It's thoroughly soaked. And Elijah prays, one faithful man prays one brief prayer to God, and the Lord sends fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. It's a remarkable moment. 
And Elijah says, those guys, let's get them. And they execute the 450 prophets. Well, you have this moment, and how is it that the people respond? 1 Kings 18, 39 tells us, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah rolls on, but he's not done yet. We reach the end of chapter 18, and Elijah prays again. And he prays to God to send rain. You see, years earlier, Elijah, in judgment on Israel, had predicted that the land would endure a drought. And they did. And so Elijah goes, and he prays, not once, not twice, but seven times for the Lord to send, send rain. And he asks his servant, is there any storm coming? And his servant comes, and he says, I see one cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah just says, get the chariot, let's run. And the Lord sends the rain. Elijah is here on Mount Carmel, all the way in the north of Israel. He's on this mountaintop, this mountaintop experience, a remarkably powerful prophet. He's met with unbelievable success at this mountain. But he's done so in the midst of severe opposition. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 19. So if you would, take your Bible. Let's read the first three verses of 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now we've already noted briefly that Ahab is a bad dude. He's profane. He's unteachable. He's greedy. 1 Kings 16.33 tells us that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings who were before him. Ahab is a bad dude dude. But Jezebel is worse. 1 Kings chapter 21, we read a story about Ahab seeing a very rich vineyard owned by a man named Naboth. Ahab sees this and he wants it and he whines because he can't have it. Jezebel, she has Naboth killed and takes it. You see, she really wears the pants. She's got the backbone that Ahab doesn't have. All the things that he wants to do, she will do. So Ahab, after this embarrassing experience at Mount Carmel, goes back and he tells on Elijah. He tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Well, now Elijah's in real trouble. Jezebel says word to Elijah, and she says, Oh, you think you won. You've got another thing coming. You dead. I'm coming after you. So Elijah runs. Now, Elijah sometimes gets a bad rap here. Verse 3 says, he was afraid and rose and ran for his life. But a good textual variant also says that Elijah saw this and rose and ran for his life. We don't really know the depths of his fear. It's not crazy to think he'd be afraid. And it's not crazy to run when an evil queen like Jezebel is threatening to kill you. So Elijah runs. This brings us to verses 4 through 8. Let's pick up there. Verse 4. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now the end of verse 3 tells us something really important but something easy to miss. Elijah has a servant with him. But when he runs, he leaves his servant in Beersheba. Now, he's completely alone, and it seems that Elijah is about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The courageous prophet becomes a cowering mess. Verse 4, he asks that he might die. It's enough, O Lord, take away my life. But how can Elijah be so despondent after such great success? Well, let's think about Elijah's success for a moment. What is his success? Well, he succeeds in demonstrating God's power remarkably on the mountaintop. He succeeds in eliminating false prophets, 450 of them. He succeeds in bringing rain to dry land. But where does he fail? He fails in his basic hopes for his ministry. 1 Kings 18, when Elijah is praying for the Lord to show up and burn the sacrifice, he prays this prayer. He says, answer me, O Lord, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. The people then are in awe at this display. They respond, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But what's the second part of Elijah's prayer? That the people would repent. But there's no evidence of any true repentance. Israel continues in idolatry, and her leaders continue to lead her down this road. The false prophets are dead, but Elijah is still alone. I mean, his incredibly powerful ministry couldn't change Jezebel's heart. Elijah's hoping for fruit, for repentance. Instead, he gets hard-hearted rebellion. Have you ever had an experience like this? You pour yourself into a relationship. I mean, you invest yourself in someone. You literally, as, as, as uh, the, the, gospel, the, the, the epistles talk about, you literally share your life with that person, only to see them respond with resentment and see the relationship fall to pieces. You pour yourself out in love for someone, only to see them respond to that love with hatred. Maybe it's because you've loved them with the truth. Elijah's exhausted, discouraged. He falls asleep under a tree. An angel wakes him up, feeds him, and then sends him on his way. Verse 8. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, what is this mountain of God? Well, if you were to track back several books in your Bible, go Genesis and then the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, you find Moses. 
caring for his father-in-law Jethro's flocks. And as he's there caring for the flocks, the Lord appears to him in a burning bush and tells him to lead the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt, to lead this redemptive movement. That's here on this mountain, Mount Horeb. Exodus chapter 4. Aaron comes and he meets Moses on this mountain, Mount Horeb, and they agree together to lead this mission. You check through the book of Exodus, you come to Exodus chapter 20, and we find this mountain again, only we find it by a different name, Mount Sinai. Because in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, Sinai and Horeb are names used interchangeably for this mountain. This is the mountain where God makes a covenant with his people. They will be his people, and he will be their God if they are faithful to this covenant. This is the place where God called Moses. This is the place where God made covenant with his people. This is the mountain of God. Now, if you remember, Mount Carmel is all the way in the north of Israel. Mount Sinai is all the way to the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, the best close-up maps can't show these both together because they're a good distance apart. But what you see here is Carmel on the top and Sinai on the bottom, some 260 miles apart. Israel's not that big compared to a country like the United States. So for 40 days, Elijah travels from Carmel all the way south to Sinai. So Elijah runs and he arrives at another mountaintop. We've moved from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai to this second mountaintop. Let's pick up in verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, when we think of mountaintop experiences, we think of emotional highs. A sign that things are going well. But when Elijah arrives on this mountaintop, he's more worn out by the journey up than he is inspired by what he finds at the top. 
when we do public reading of Scripture, which we haven't done a lot of during COVID, we have the reader conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation respond by saying, thanks be to God, because God has spoken to his people. We're grateful that God has revealed himself through his word. And in verse 9, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And this word is a question. What are you doing here? Now, our view of God and what he's doing in this moment affects how we hear this question. Is the Lord rebuking Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Is the Lord trying to figure out what's going on? What are you doing here, Elijah? Or is the Lord walking hand in hand with this prophet in this discouraging moment. What are you doing here, Elijah? Ever had a conversation like this? See your kid walk in the door and you know something's wrong. You may already know what's wrong, but you say, what's up? What's going on? Not because you're trying to figure out, you're trying to draw the heart of the child out, trying to get them to share with you what's in their heart. Now, there's no doubt that Elijah is tempted toward despair. But the God of grace, the God who rules over all things, knows why Elijah is here. And he seeks him out like a loving parent with a question. Elijah has gone to this mountain. It's no accident. He's gone to the mountain of God to hear from the Lord. And the Lord will speak. But first, Elijah answers. What am I doing here? I've been jealous for you, the Lord. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your altars, your prophets are killed. And the last one left. I mean, one thing that's remarkable here is the intense God-centeredness of Elijah. He is consumed with the glory of God. He is depressed, but he's not ultimately depressed because he's failed, because he's not getting what he wants. He's jealous for the Lord. In Exodus 20, this same mountain, when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, he describes himself this way, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, Elijah at this same mountain is reflecting the character, God's desire for his own glory. Imagine, I mean, just imagine, if God's people were more intensely zealous for the name and glory of God than we are for our desires and our wants at church, at home, wherever. I mean, most church squabbles among the people of God are people jealous for their own interests rather than being intensely God-centered. Asking the questions that Elijah asks here completely changes the equation. So let's evaluate Elijah's answer, see if it's true. Elijah has jealously protected the name and glory of God. Is that true? That is true. Is it true that the people of Israel have forsaken God and killed God's prophets? This also is true. Is Elijah the last man standing? Well, it depends on how we understand this. You see, 1 Kings 18 tells us that Obadiah hid 100 prophets by 50s in caves. So there are prophets, but they're in hiding. And do you remember this moment, 450 and how many? One. There's one speaking up. 
one courageously standing for the Lord, Elijah seems to be noting that he's the only one actually speaking up. And this isn't the first time he said this. On that same mountain, Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.22, he says, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. He was the only one standing there. You see, Elijah enters this mountain of covenant to bring covenant accusations against Israel. His emphasis is on God's glory and God's character. Your covenant, your altars, your prophets. There's a note of despair in his loneliness, but he's making an accurate accusation. Well, then we have this famous and curious answer from the Lord, verse 11. Go out, stand on the mountain. Okay, Elijah, you're looking for an answer? Go out and listen. Now, we have four stages to this answer. First, the great wind. We've got a storm. The Lord's not in the storm. Then we have a fire. The Lord's not in a fire. And earthquake. The Lord is not in the earthquake. Well, what do these three things have in common? Storm, earthquake, fire. They are remarkably powerful demonstrations of God's power, his creative energy. So when does God show up? Verse 12. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And here. Here we have the word of the Lord. Here we have the voice of Yahweh. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He knows he has heard the voice of God. Now, a lot of things have been made of this low whisper, as the good old King James puts it, a still small voice. We have songs that talk about the way God speaks to us in a still, small voice in private. But brothers and sisters, this is not talking about the private, mysterious moving of the Spirit of God. Oh, God does move by His Spirit in a mysterious way. But that's not what is going on here. What's the point of this? Elijah has just stood on a mountain, a different mountaintop, and seen the Lord appear in fire and consume a soaked sacrifice. He's seen the Lord appear in a storm and send rain. These are remarkable demonstrations of God's power. But for Elijah, the most important and most regular demonstration of the power of God is the word of the Lord. Look again at the end of verse 12. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Then at the end of verse 13, a voice said to him, what are you doing here? The sound, verse 12, the voice, 13, they are the same word. Well, if we track to back to verse 9, we see this. The word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here? The sound, the voice is the word of the Lord. The Lord comes to his people primarily through his word. God is present primarily in his word in an even greater way, he's saying, than the other amazing acts. Look, God can show up anytime in amazing displays of miraculous power, but he most often and most regularly works through his word. 
Elijah's primary job isn't to perform miracles. It's to speak this word, the word of the Lord. The Lord is saying the absence of miracles isn't an absence of my presence and power. I am present. I am at work. God's presence and power come to us as God works by the power of his spirit, convicting us through his word, encouraging us, and drawing us to Christ. So the Lord asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Verse 13, Elijah answers, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And we're like, wait a minute, this is deja vu all over again. Didn't we just have this conversation? It's a recapitulation of the same exact accusation. But the Lord has now answered. God is still at work by his prophets. Nothing has changed. There's evil in the kingdom, but God is still on the throne. The Lord then tells Elijah to go back the way he came and he gives him three tasks. Verse 15, anoint Hazael king over Syria. Verse 16, anoint Jehu king over Israel. Verse 16, anoint Elisha prophet in your place. Elijah goes from confronting a king to anointing the next king. The purpose of each of these three men will be instruments of judgment. Verse 17, the one who escapes from Haziel, Jehu will kill. One who escapes from Jehu, Elisha will put to death. And yet after judgment, the Lord closes with a promise of grace. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that are not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God says, I will raise up another leading prophet, Elisha. I will leave myself a remnant faithful. Romans 11.5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Grace always has a remnant. One of Satan's great strategies in moments of despair is to convince us that we're completely alone. Now, in one sense... Elijah is the lone prophet standing against the forces of evil. But the Lord reminds him, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. People who are resisting the forces of evil and who haven't kissed this false god. Elijah, you feel alone, but you're not truly alone. Have you ever reached a point where you've poured yourself out until you're empty? It's like if someone wanted to draw one more thing from you, there's nothing to give. And so in this moment, you feel alone, but you don't just feel alone, you feel empty. And perhaps the worst part about this is knowing that there are people who need you and you can't help them. So what do we do when we are alone and empty? Well, one thing that helps, like Elijah, is to recognize that we are one small part of all that God is doing in the world. Now, our perspective is limited, sometimes by our sin, always by our finiteness, by the fact that we are finite beings, God is infinite. We can only see a little piece. Now, Elijah, he's got that hotline right to God. God speaks directly to him, and he speaks for God. 
There's no person alive in Elijah's day who has a better understanding of how God is at work, yet he only sees the edges of God's ways. He only sees a small part of what God is doing. He looks around, he's got, God, where's the help? He can't see it. Yet God is already raising up another great prophet. He's got 100 prophets in caves ready to roll and 7,000 faithful servants. Brothers and sisters, we are one small part of all that God is doing. Think about our own community this morning. 25 minutes away, there's a church just seven or eight years old by the name of Christ Church Presbyterian. What do you know about that church? What do you know about how God is at work there? Do you imagine that God is at work there? I think he is. If God works through the preaching of his word in the gospel. Downtown, there's an Anglican congregation, the Cathedral of St. Luke and St. Paul, a faithful gospel preaching rector. Is God at work in that church? What do we know about what God is doing there? Nothing, almost. I mean, we pray for these churches. We know a little. I know they're pastors, but we know just the edges of God's ways. But imagine with me that we lift our sights a little further. We travel halfway around the globe to the country of Azerbaijan. We find a remote village where a man by the name of Hafiz is a pastor. There on his family plot of ground, he's built with his own hands a cinder block building where believers under great persecution meet. Surrounded by Muslim persecution, is God at work there? What do we know about what God is doing? Just the edges of his ways. What do we know about what God is up to in our own congregation? Just the edges of his ways. God is at every moment doing 10 billion things. And you might know one or two of them. God is at work in ways far beyond anything we can see. We fixate though on what's right in front of us. We step back and gain some perspective. We recognize that we flip out what's right in front of us, but this one tiny thing in the midst of 10 billion things is not that big a deal. God cares about us personally and individually, but he doesn't need us. God can accomplish his work without us. Sometimes taking a deep breath and taking a step back from the urgency of the moment can help us clear our heads and realize, God's got this. He had it long before I was around, and he'll have it long after I'm here. There's no need to panic. Now, the struggle for this comes because though we know this is true, that God is doing all of these things, and we can only see a little bit of them, is that God also works in his time and his way, not ours. Now, Elijah is successful in his contest of power against the prophets of Baal. But he seemingly failed in his larger hopes of seeing the nation repent, the leaders come to repentance. But what is Elijah's task? His task isn't to make the people repent. His task is to be faithful, to preach the word of the Lord, to be faithful to God's call, to be faithful to his mission, to faithfully preach the gospel. One plants... One waters, 
God gives the increase. As Isaiah 55 puts it, God's word never returns to him empty. But it accomplishes his purpose. And that's a difficulty because I got all kinds of purposes. I got all kinds of ideas. God, I know how you should work through your word. And God says it accomplishes my purpose, not yours. But brothers and sisters, we can trust God's hand even when we can't see how it's at work. God's ways are not our ways. You see, in the in-between, when we know that God is at work, but his ways are not ours, we can know this because Jesus tells us it is true. Christ is building his church. Grace is never without a remnant. God never leaves himself without witness. Elijah heard these words. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church may last another 500 years. Or it could die in five months. But the church of Jesus Christ will never die. I mean, what about that first Baptist church in Jerusalem? Didn't exist. They didn't have Baptist, Presbyterian, and Anglican. They had 3,000 Christians worshiping together in a temple. And here we are 2,000 years later. And 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, the church will be advancing. You and I will be long gone. No one will even remember us. But the mission of Christ will go forward. God will still be calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to faith in Christ. The church in America, it may become a flickering candle, but the church of God cannot die. It will grow and flourish until Jesus comes back. Christ is building his church, and in the meantime, you can know that you are never truly alone. God's children are never alone. Now, before we dig too far into this, I want to just think about this for a moment, because often in Scripture, we hold truths in tension. So we have God's love and God's justice, and it's not always easy for us to see how those interact, but they do interact. And we have in Scripture, as it relates to how we relate to God and one another, two truths. God is enough, but he's also designed us for community. So 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that all the parts of the body need all the other parts of the body. He says, and the parts you think you don't need, those are the parts that you need. The parts you think are dispensable, those are essential. And so we need community. God didn't design us to walk through life alone. He designed us to walk through life in community. But it's also true that God himself is sufficient. Elijah felt alone. But he wasn't truly alone. Now, there are some of us in this period of isolation, some of you who are sitting at home, who feel more isolated than ever, more alone than ever. Someone we prayed for uh, recently dropped a line and said, was such a gift of God that we prayed for them that day because they were just feeling alone. It's always easy to feel alone, but it's especially easy right now to feel alone. 
Elijah wasn't truly alone, and we're never truly alone either. People who know have said things like this to me. Being a pastor is a lonely job. That's true. It can be a lonely job. And, and being a pastor in a place where there's no strong, healthy leadership community can be difficult. But have you ever been? I don't mean being a pastor. Some, maybe a couple of you have, but have you ever felt completely alone? You look around and you feel like there's no one there. I mean, being a business owner can be a lonely job. No one feels that, I mean, you want to hire employees to act like owners, but none of them do. Feels alone. Being a parent of teenagers is a lonely job. There aren't a lot of attaboys you're really succeeding here. You're surrounded by hopes that are unrealized. That you hope the Lord will answer that prayer, but his ways are not yours and he's not answering it yet. Being a single parent is a lonely job. When you're trying to be mom and dad or dad and mom and feeling like you're failing at both. Being single, that's a lonely job. Hoping for companionship you haven't realized or seeing the death literally or figuratively of a relationship that you did experience and now you're alone. But brothers and sisters, listen to these words from Deuteronomy 31 verse 8. The Lord will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then these words repeated in Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, what can man do to me? And if God is there for you, it doesn't matter who else isn't there for you. This was true for Elijah, and it's infinitely truer for us today. In Ezekiel 22, the Lord is looking. He recognizes that his people have fallen short, and he looks for a man, one single man, one person to stand in the gap, but the Lord says, I found none. There came a day when all of Elijah's worst fears were realized. There was no hope for Israel. But Isaiah 63 tells us of a greater coming day. Again, the Lord looks. He looks for someone to stand in the gap between the infinitely holy God and his fallen people. But there was no one. The Lord again looked, and there's no one to stand in the gap. So what does God do? Isaiah 63, 5. I looked, but there was no one to help, so my own arm provided salvation. There was no human being to stand in the gap. God himself had to do it. God provided this man. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God provided this man Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights without eating to bring accusation against Israel. Jesus endured 40 days and 40 nights of temptation without eating to deliver us from our sin, to provide pardon for the sins of the world. Perhaps you came here today knowing you need community. It's not good to be alone. But you haven't yet realized that the only place you can find a true security is in Jesus Christ. 
Oh friend, would you turn from your sin? From looking for security and safety in anywhere but Jesus, would you trust him today? We can feel alone, but if we are in Christ, we can never be truly alone, for has the Lord not said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am your helper. Let's go to God now and take a minute to respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.